Hello, this is Living with Feeling, a podcast about emotions in the 21st century. It's brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. In this episode, historian of child psychology Emma Sutton explores the recent rise to prominence of childhood trauma as a psychological and a cultural phenomenon. Let yourself surrender to this primitive reflex, this positive feedback where the shaking's beginning to take off. I'm lying on the floor of my producer Natalie's office. So I can see your knees moving a little bit and some twitches in your legs, so they're going side to side a little bit. How does that feel for you? I feel like I'm wobbling like a jelly. It's not something I can, I can help or stop. It's really peculiar. Steve Haynes is a trauma therapist who specialises in teaching TRE, or Tension and Trauma Releasing Exercises, that are designed to induce tremors in the body. He's talking me through a series of these exercises over Zoom so I can experience therapeutic shaking for myself. This was a model developed by Dr David Baselli and is a really, really simple paradigm of using shaking to release tension and shaking to connect to the body. Steve is part of a new wave of therapists and researchers working in the field of trauma. Although it started life as a technical medical concept... Trauma is now a cultural phenomenon. It's at large in society shaping everything from political policies to the way we talk about our everyday life experiences and relationships. But although we all use the same word, are we really speaking the same language of trauma? It's a slippery idea that's hard to pin down. So what is trauma? What's it got to do with childhood? And what should we be doing about it? For Steve, the body is central to understanding what trauma is and how we should deal with it. Trauma is anything that overwhelms our ability to cope. Trauma is being stuck in fight or flight or freeze. You're stuck with your racing heart, your churning belly, your tight muscles, or you're stuck in the collapse. You can't do anything. It feels Everything feels overwhelming. Your body feels numb. Your brain feels cloudy. Being stuck in those responses is really, really hard work for human beings. That's trauma. Because Steve sees the body as being integral to the experience of trauma, that's where he starts when treating its adverse effects. Let's bring your knees together another two centimetres this time. That's it, not too much. Ooh, you don't want to stall now it. Now the shaking's moved to a different part of my body now. That's odd. Fantastic. So... We often find that over time, a few weeks, we'll get shakes moving up and down the whole spine. Often the diaphragm's a big thing to negotiate, shoulder, girdle, jaw. So how is this actually helping me with any sort of accumulated life stress or trauma that I may have in my body? I'd say there's three things that happen when we shake. One, the pure joy of the neurological stimulus of shaking. So it's unusual and quite surprising for many people. And you get a big burst of good news going through your nervous system. But also, it's a training in mind-body interaction, how to feel for you, finding specific sensations of what ease feels like, how to connect your body, how to map it, and how to pay attention to that. 
And then the third element is really just understanding trauma. You're not mad, bad or broken. These are normal responses to extraordinary events. What we call anxiety is seen as a psychological problem. It's actually a physiological problem. And if we learn to regulate our physiology, the psychology will fade into the background. The kind of therapy Steve Haynes offers, TRE, is very different to counselling or psychotherapeutic treatments. Steve doesn't believe that you need to talk about your trauma in order to handle it. Most people assume that trauma, you need to talk about what's happened to you. So there's an enormous freedom in working through the body and saying, I don't have to understand and I don't have to remember. What I can do is I can learn to regulate intense feelings in my body. We're not going to go back and try and be detectives and unpick that whole experience and try and understand it. What we're going to do is help you right now in this present moment feel safe and help you connect to your body because your body is the vehicle how you express your overwhelm. Let's teach you that there are some skills you can do. Let's help you find agency in your body at this present moment because it's not happening right now even though it has a huge trigger and power over you. Steve Haynes' approach to trauma has been heavily influenced by the work of Bessel van der Kolk, the author of the bestseller The Body Keeps the Score. Nearly two million copies of this popular psychology book have been sold across the world, and it's been widely endorsed by celebrities and children's charities, as well as academics. For van der Kolk, childhood is a crucial area of research. I asked Steve why the early years of life are believed to be such a key period for trauma. For every soldier in a war zone, Bessel van der Kolk states there's ten children who've been through adverse childhood experiences. Relational dynamics are not casual they are absolutely life and death how you are loved how you are accepted whether you're bullied whether you're accepted by your peers and fitting into social groups is life or death i really can't stress that enough so really recognizing that relational dynamics and power dynamics are central to the experience of safety and when are we most vulnerable? When we're children, you know, we absolutely need people to help us feel safe. We have no choice but to love people who abuse us in many times. Get you and I can't stand the sight of you. You've ruined my life. Get away from me. What is wrong with you? There is something wrong with you. A key study in the mid-1990s on the impact of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, has become central to this idea that what happens to us in childhood can determine our health and well-being for the rest of our lives. Dr Charlie Baker is an Associate Professor of Mental Health at the University of Nottingham. An adverse experience in childhood would be a whole range of different things. Um, we definitely focus very much on abuse and harm, whether that's physical, emotional, psychological or sexual. But also adverse childhood experiences can include things like parental loss, divorce of parents, can include things like being bullied at school, experiencing mental health difficulties in childhood. Children with multiple adverse childhood experiences are less likely to do well in school and less likely to then go on to secure employment that is safe and, and provides sufficiently for them. 
they're more likely to experience physical health problems and um, less likely to seek help for those physical health problems and also more likely to experience mental health problems. The broad range of life events included on the list of adverse childhood experiences is representative of an increasingly expansive definition of trauma. Over the last few decades, ideas about what counts as a traumatic experience have changed significantly, both within a medical context and the wider culture. One of the definitions of trauma that's quite commonly used is that it's an experience where there's some kind of threat to life, and that's certainly been a definition with regards post-traumatic stress disorder. It was very much linked with war and that constant threat to life that's inherent with being in a war zone. Through the 1980s and into the 1990s, we very much started to recognise trauma as being more individually defined and would consist of things like um, a threat to the bodily integrity of a person, but also things like persistent emotional abuse, persistent psychological abuse, bullying, harassment, street harassment, all of those things that certainly weren't a threat to life at that particular point, but that formed part of an experience for individuals where all of those different factors might come into play. This inclusion of more commonplace experiences within the category of trauma has had important consequences for how we think about childhood and its dangers. It's not just physical or sexual abuse we need to worry about. Now a child's everyday emotional interactions with their parents or carers also have the potential to put them at serious risk of long-term harm. Trauma in childhood can have such a massive impact because of the developmental stage of the child. So where children are growing up, they need very basic needs to be met. And those needs are for nutrition, for being clean and warm, for being safe and comfortable. Where that can go wrong is if there isn't that sense of safety and if that child grows up experiencing home, which should be a safe place and a comfortable place for them, as instead representing a place that's risky and where they're experiencing harm, even though the child might not be able to frame it in those terms, we know that there's not that core condition of emotional nourishment. The parameters of parental emotional abuse and neglect are difficult to define precisely from the outside looking in. Today, trauma is identified by the person who feels traumatised, rather than according to any objective, universally agreed set of criteria, as it was in the past. Trauma is what the person defines it to be from my perspective. So what's traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another person. And it's something that's completely unique and very much personal to the individual. Certainly, we know that there doesn't have to be a threat to life for somebody to experience trauma or for somebody to experience an event as particularly threatening. And trauma can be multiple smaller events that accumulate to become quite traumatic. And that's something that I think we're only just starting to grapple with now in, in mental health terms. This new approach to trauma is changing the way that many psychologists think about older mental health diagnoses, such as personality disorders. 
Some researchers are reframing the experiences of those who would previously have received such diagnoses as part of a new condition called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or complex PTSD for short. This kind of post-traumatic stress disorder is very different to the kind that we're used to seeing in TV dramas, where a military veteran has flashbacks to their war zone experiences. With simple PTSD, we might see one traumatic event, a person has survived it but is plagued by nightmares and flashbacks and hypervigilance, so jumping every time there's a trigger point for that. With complex PTSD, what we're more likely to see is people who do struggle with nightmares, they do struggle with sleep, but actually they struggle more with how they're interacting with people. So they find it very difficult to ask for help in a way that society deems acceptable. So instead, there might be frantic attempts to gain help through things like self-harm and substance abuse and difficult interpersonal relationships frantically fearing abandonment for example if a child has been abandoned and then they grow up into an adult who's fearful of being abandoned again that would then be part of complex PTSD. For Charlie Baker one of the advantages of approaching mental illness as a response to trauma is that it helps to reduce the associated stigma asking what happened to you not what's wrong with you. So instead of, for example, a personality disorder diagnosis, which very much says you are something um, wrong or you are inherently bad as a person, what's happened to you recognises that actually the way you're presenting now, those experiences come about because of trauma and they were previously ways for somebody to survive. And as an adult, we want to get through that that there are different ways to survive but we need to recognize what's happened before we can do that and if we start from a position of what's wrong with you we're locating all of that difficulty in the individual rather than recognizing that lots of things have happened to that person societal and individual while cis reduction in stigma is extremely welcome There is the potential for a trauma-informed approach to mental health to present its own ethical issues, especially when there is such a significant emphasis on childhood and parental relationships. The risk is that we go from locating the problem inside the person who's experiencing mental health issues to locating the problem inside their parents. There is a long history of parent and especially mother blaming within medicine and psychology. Dr Angela Davis is a historian of motherhood and parenting in 20th century Britain. It's a very easy blame to blame the mothers. In the first half of the century, mothers were blamed for causing infant mortality because they weren't feeding babies in an appropriate way, uh, with babies dying because of diarrhoea, and that was blamed on mothers who either were using dirty bottles or not breastfeeding or doing something wrong. And those ideas are there then with John Bowlby in the mid-century, that again, if a mother wasn't showing the right levels of attachment towards their baby, that was going to lead to psychological problems for the baby later on. And it comes back in the 1970s when you see things like autism being blamed on mothers, that mothers hadn't shown, you know, hadn't performed in the right way, they hadn't had the right relationship with their babies. And it goes on and you can see it in, you know, repeated ever since. Looking at and listing the faults of mothers means that other influences and problems in a child's life avoid scrutiny. 
This perspective also fails to take into account that someone's ability to parent is heavily dependent on the circumstances of their lives at that moment. Focusing solely on mothers rather than thinking about the context in which they are mothering, the socioeconomic context, whether they have appropriate support, what the housing is like, um, the poverty that mothers may be experiencing, all of these things. It's both easy to demonize mothers and it's a very useful excuse or scapegoat because then governments don't have to deal with things like housing, <laughs> um, education policy or providing childcare or any of the other things because uh, these theories can be used to justify that actually it's just the mother-child relationship which is going to determine children's outcomes rather than a whole range of other factors as well. American psychotherapist Joshua Coleman believes that the parent-blaming narrative has gone too far in contemporary society. One consequence that he deals with daily in his practice is the breakdown of relationships between adult children and their parents. In 2013, the British charity Standalone was set up specifically to provide support for those impacted by this trend. Joshua contributes to the work of this charity and specialises in helping estranged family members to reconcile. I asked him how widespread an issue parent and adult child estrangement is at the moment. I do think it's a growing significant issue. In the US, it's around 10%, so one out of 10 parents are estranged. And that's research with mothers. It's probably even more with fathers after divorce. So you're saying one in 10 adult children in the US, you estimate, is estranged from their parent, does not have any contact with at least one of their parents? Exactly. Wow, okay. Exactly. Those numbers seem extraordinary, but come from a study in family estrangement published in 2020 by Carl Pillemar, a psychology professor at Cornell University. Joshua's experiences as a therapist suggest to him that these increasing rates of estrangement are linked to contemporary ideas about trauma, and that our 21st century trauma culture brings with it both positive and negative consequences. Yes, I think it works in two different ways. On the one hand, I think that the trauma culture gives um, kind of a new voice to children who've been traumatized, who might not have had a language to talk about the ways that they were traumatized. It also allows for a more uh, nuanced discussion about that, about the kind of the fabric of trauma and the subtle ways that it can occur and, and how that might either turn the child, make the child feel like having a relationship with the parent isn't in that child's best interest. Uh, it may, if the parent's open to listening and learning and educating themselves, give the parent a way to repair the trauma if the child um, is open to that. On the other hand, I do think that the, the language of trauma and our preoccupation with it, however positive and needed, is potentially problematic. In the past three decades, there's been enormous expansion of what we consider to be traumatizing, harmful, abusive, neglectful behavior. Joshua Coleman believes that family relationships are becoming a casualty of changing norms and expectations about what is good, healthy parenting. Angela Davis's research highlights just how significantly the experts have revised their parenting instruction over time. Within living memory, parents in the UK were medically advised to raise their children using methods that many today would regard as emotionally neglectful and traumatising. In the 1940s, the um, parenting advice of Trubi King was really popular in Anglo countries. He was advising mothers that 
feeding routines were really important and that meant um, four hourly feeding for babies and that they shouldn't be fed in between and that in between, in fact, babies should be left. <coughs> that babies should be in the pram on their own, not with any distractions, that they could be left in their room alone with a window open or put in a pram uh, down at the bottom of the garden or somewhere quiet and that mothers should leave them and that they shouldn't go and attend to them um, even if they were crying or if they were showing distress because it was really important that, that babies learned from early on that they had to follow this routine and that if you went to attend to a baby that actually you, you were doing damage to them for the future. Angela Davis's oral history research also reminds us that smacking and other forms of physical chastisement were, until relatively recently, widely socially acceptable. I think that ideas about discipline and punishment have changed, of course, again, dramatically. And I would say that there's always been an awareness about extent and levels and that extreme violence was never tolerated. In fact, extreme violence would have always been seen as something problematic. But well into the 1970s, 1980s, in fact, parental use of physical punishment was considered quite normal and quite acceptable. And things like slapping a child who was approaching a fire or or pinching a child who pinched another child was something very commonly spoken about amongst um, the women I spoke to. They would have considered that quite normal if their mothers had pinched them, if they were pinching someone else, and they would have used that with, with their own children as well. Often what I see in working with parents and adult children is that a Parents are being accused of behaviors as being traumatizing, hurtful, abusive, neglectful. And the parents' generation really wasn't on their radar. So part of what I'm doing as a psychologist when I do therapy with the parents and the adult child together, which is really my preferred mode if possible, um, is to get the parents to learn how to speak the language of the adult child so that they can do a better job empathizing and and rather than saying, oh, you're being a snowflake, you're being too sensitive, that wasn't so bad, you want to see a bad childhood, I had a bad childhood, you're just walk in the park, um, you know, to get them to be able to say something like, well, I guess I had blind spots, I wasn't aware that that was so hurtful to you, but I'm glad that you're telling me that it was, and I hope that gives us a way to, to work on it. Surely some parents do treat their children in ways that we could all agree on are traumatizing for the child. Um, so why shouldn't we, yes. as a society, point the finger of blame at those parents? We should. And that's why all of my methodology is oriented towards parents taking responsibility and acknowledging the ways that they harmed their child or neglected them or abused them or traumatized them. Not only, that's the only chance that the parent may have to reconcile with the child if the child has cut them off. But it's also the parent's duty and obligation to heal the damage that they caused. But we also have to be more oriented to these parents who are also traumatized themselves. So trauma begets trauma begets trauma. Um, but I think we as in Western societies in particular are very preoccupied with the child's trauma, understandably so. We should be oriented towards protecting innocent children who are powerless. Uh, but once they're grown, we should also have to be oriented towards the enormous pain and immiseration that can be caused when a parent who is cut off from that adult child and is now living a life of isolation and loneliness and 
um, despair because their child is no longer speaking to them. So we have to have both things in hand. We both have to help parents learn how to repair the trauma that they caused, but we also as a culture have to care about those parents who are being cut off as a result of it. On popular internet forums like Mumsnet and Reddit, there are dedicated threads and boards for people who believe they may have experienced childhood trauma at the hands of their parents and are wondering what to do about it. Those who post on these forums have a phrase for cutting someone out of their life who they feel has been a traumatising and abusive presence. It's called going no contact, and it's frequently recommended as the solution to newcomers. Joshua Coleman and Charlie Baker both have concerns about the nature of the advice and support that is given on these platforms. There's a massive difference between discussing trauma in a therapeutic relationship and discussing trauma on an internet forum. And both of them have space. But I think for some people, the internet and and those types of forums might be the only place where their experiences have been validated. So where they felt that they're heard, they felt that they're believed um, and they felt that they're listened to. What that can build up into is, I think, quite a strong sense of trying to please that community. So the no contact issue may well be about, I've received all of this support from this particular online forum. The forum are now telling me that I should go no contact with my family, so they must have my best interests at heart, whereas actually they might not have that person's best interests at heart. It's really complicated, I think, for anyone going no contact and definitely not something that should be done as a result of an internet forum. If you go into a forum, the whole purpose of those forums is to get support. So you're probably not going to get a lot of pushback. If you go into a site, a no-contact site on Reddit or Narcissistic Mother's site or any of those things, you're not going to get a lot of people saying, well, think about it from your parents' perspective. You're, you're far more likely to get people saying, yeah, best thing I ever did, I feel better, done with the drama, never felt so good as cutting off that that person. Um, and, you know, there's a place for it. I'm not saying that those things are purely problematic, but they, on the other hand, can be problematic in the way that they just invite us to get support for some of our more desperate needs for validation. Sometimes our desperate needs for validation um, don't come from a particularly healthy place. They might come from a place of great insecurity or anxiety or something else like that. And so sometimes we're being encouraged to cut off people or ghost them or go no contact or have boundaries against people who are in many ways workable and want to hear and want to work through those things. And people could be better off in approaching that parent and working through the conflict if the parent is willing and able to. I'm very interested in the language that we use to describe our experiences and the impact that particular words have on the way we understand and make sense of those experiences. If we were to sort of remove the word trauma from our vocabulary and just replace it with pain, would we be better off as a culture? Yeah, I I think that's great because The problem with the language of trauma is that if somebody's been traumatized, we have to consider who the traumatizer is. And once we do that, at least in terms of the contemporary imagination, that means getting rid of that person, going no contact with that person, rejecting them, shaming them, abusing them, etc. There's this idea that if somebody traumatized you, you can do whatever you want back to them. Um, So that's different than pain. pain. Pain is more... Uh, amorphous. It doesn't identify oneself in that. In the victimized light, 
that trauma can. You know, people are victimized. People are abused or molested. They're treated terribly. So I don't want in any way to diminish real victimization. It, it's a real thing. But victimization can also be a form of identity in the way that it also can invite empathy and rejection of others who one now considers to be problematic. So I do think that, to your point, that changing it from trauma to pain does invite a different kind of reflection that could be more useful. Giles Fraser is a vicar and philosopher, and he also believes that there are problems with treating our experiences of pain within the medical framework of trauma. The way in which we think about it now, the medicalization of it particularly, would have been very alien to the sort of great philosophers of the past who thought about pain and suffering and how we deal with pain and suffering. I, I think the, the problem with the language of the medicalization of it is that it invites the idea that it can be fixed. There's a pill to take or there's a course to take or there's something like this. Whereas um, for some people, the nature of, to want a better word, trauma, is actually that it is somehow something one is in constant recovery from. And it's a part of one's life and it's how one sees the world. There is no pill, there is no therapy that will uh, uh, help someone over the death of a child. You know, it's not a problem to be fixed. That's why I have a real problem with the medicalization of everything. Um, because it invites the idea that everything be fixed. And I don't think some things can be. Some things just need to be, well, not need to be, have to be born. I'm not saying it's moral, it's just... That's just how it is. For Giles Fraser, our contemporary trauma culture is caught up in a wider cultural emphasis on emotional expression. If I look at, I suppose, my grandparents' generation, and I thought they were sort of underexpressive, and now I look at my children's generation, I think they're overexpressive. I think that the way in which they deal with trauma is as public display, and it's worst, and I think there's something highly problematic about trauma as public display. But I think there's also something problematic about trauma as entirely private grief that you don't talk about. It's just a sense of where our sort of boundaries are about how we manage our own uh, traumatic experiences. Do you think there is anything we can learn from other philosophies or religious traditions about how to deal with the existence of profound pain and suffering in our lives and how to help others who have experienced this, maybe particularly in childhood? I, I, um, I, I suffered quite... Uh, I went away to boarding school when I was seven and I was beaten a lot. Uh, and um, most days I was beaten. At, you know, people have much, much worse. But there was a sort of trauma in my, as it were, that sort of language. And what I've personally found is that, the own, that there, is, there is a value in being able to talk about it. There is a sense in which um, being able to share it makes you feel less lonely about, about having it. But nonetheless, it, it doesn't dissolve it in any way, you know, so it's there. And I think faith is a part of the whole jigsaw of things that we've, you know, pretty much lost now, which um, holds people. I mean, to be, to be told, you know, when people believe this, okay, to be told you are loved by God in your specificity, the idea that one is not alone in the world, that one is loved, that, that one's pain is seen and one is, as it were, held. OK, now there was, it wasn't that long ago that people genuinely 
believe this. I mean, I believe it, but it's like it's not a it's not a widespread belief anymore. But when it used to be, there is something there that makes one feel um, that this is going to be okay in some sense, some mysterious sense. This is going to be okay. We don't have anything quite equivalent to that these days. Another consequence of the spread of trauma culture is the way that words like trauma and abuse are used more and more in our day-to-day interactions with each other. There are many people who are abused and abused very badly and that, that needs to be respected and honoured and held. And But the idea that we use that word for lots of other things, it seems to me to, to be a, a devaluation of the pain that people who have been genuinely abused has. So I am anxious about the mission creep of words like abuse when actually, you know, you know, having a row in the family is not abuse. Having a, you know, or sort of not getting what you want is not having been abused. I mean, I also, like other people, I think that we're increasingly describing things as trauma that seem to me like ordinary, you know, the sort of things that you ordinarily have in life, you know, the sort of pains and frustrations and, and uh, disappointments that you have in life. The idea that the language of trauma creeps into all of this... I do have a problem with that. But there is lots to be said for the idea that we can talk about things more. Build a bit. Build a house. Build a house. Alex Evans is the director of Kazoom, an organisation that works with children who have experienced very serious and wide-ranging childhood trauma. Exploitation, homelessness traumatic grief and separation from their family members, as well as religious persecution. Many children and young people we're working with have experienced significant racism, violence, prejudice. So we have, we have kind of a, quite a complex profile of different life experiences and also responses to those experiences as well. Lots of summer heat, warming my little feet, many vegetables growing, lots of lawns to be mowing. Farmers ready to be sowing. For Alex, trauma is, above all else, a social problem and one that demands a collective response. Ultimately, I think that institutions, systems, structures are the most omnipresent and powerful things that create and recreate trauma. Ultimately, we have to look at the system of capitalism or the system of politics you know, to really see where the, the bigger picture trauma lies. So many of the young people that I'm working with will have experienced interpersonal and relational violences. They will have been subjected to some extremely serious and potentially damaging relationships in their lives. And because of that, we'll find it very difficult to trust adults The BUILD project is a chance for children who are excluded from mainstream school to be creative where they feel safe to speak or to imagine. The last couple of sessions we have been interviewing each other, asking each other questions as if we're working for a radio station. Everything that we do is centred around the, the well-being and safety of the young person. They can open up, they can explore any difficult issues that might be going on, but in a creative setting. 
you know, I mean, you can look at the kind of profile of a child or young person that's been excluded from school and then you can look at what's happened in their lives and you can understand why that person is so angry at the world or feels so mistrustful of people who have let them down time and time again. You know, even just the experience of being excluded from school. What a letdown. What a violence against children. And something that's happening up and down the country in huge numbers is scandalous. And when you look at how you how that's broken down uh, across, you know, ethnic identities, for example, even more so, or socioeconomic identities, we're failing children in our country. And so a trauma-informed approach... It's actually a kind of political stance, in a way. It's us taking a position to say that we, we do not accept the ill-treatment of children in our country and we're doing something about it. We're doing the best that we can right now to support those children and young people. Yes! Hello, hi, good evening. Welcome to the What's Up Art. My name is Kumari. I'm a one of the Bright Future member. We are Bright Future. We are young migrants fighting for the change. So we have amazing... The work um, that Kazum does is not therapeutic in the conventional sense. The emphasis is on creating safe and fun environments where children can learn to trust again. The idea of relationships harm, but relationships heal, is really central to, I think, a trauma-informed practice. The recovery from trauma happens in relationships... It happens with people. It doesn't ha- you can't recover from trauma by yourself in a sealed box. Um, and it's about setting down the conditions for those relationships to be built and to then for it to thrive. And from there, I think you then start to get the potential healing from trauma to take place. The building of the relationship, the holding in mind of the young person, the remembering of their name, the remembering of their experiences, and them seeing you treating everybody with a sense of respect uh, and equality within the space. What's interesting and hopeful about the research on trauma is that not every child who lives through potentially traumatising experiences goes on to have long-term problems. Supportive adult relationships don't just have a role to play in children's recovery from trauma. Alex points out that they can also help protect them from the impact of traumatising experiences in the first place, even when they've had multiple adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. If there are four or more ACEs, you have a much higher likelihood of experiencing mental and physical ill health. But there's also a load of research to suggest that you can have as many ACEs as you like, but if you have protective factors in your life, adults who believe in you, adults who care, adults who can look after you, it doesn't have to be your direct parent or garden or care it could be a teacher or it could be a a distant relative or it could be your best friend's mum as long as there are those people in your life that can support and protect and listen to you and treat you with all of the respect that you deserve as a young person that the impact of those aces doesn't necessarily lead on to a really deterministic early death So we have to balance the fatalistic, deterministic side and understand and appreciate the ACEs study for what it is. But also we can really look towards, you know, protective factors which support children and young people to go on to live happy and healthy lives. 
It seems to me that the contemporary concept of childhood trauma brings with it both benefits and risks. It makes visible the suffering of those who are too young and powerless to speak up for themselves, and as adults it gives them a language with which to talk about and validate their experiences. For me personally, it's right that we now pay much closer attention to the dangers of emotional abuse and neglect, whilst acknowledging the need to use these words in a way that is respectful and fair. Throughout human history, we've struggled to come to terms with and cope with extreme distress. And I'm convinced that the medical framing of trauma, with its emphasis on the body, opens up valuable research into mind-body interactions and new therapies. I found the tension and trauma release exercises that I did with Steve helped me and I've carried on doing them since our interview. But I'm also concerned about the authority we give medical knowledge. Psychology and psychiatry in particular are profoundly shaped by cultural assumptions and values, and nested within our understanding of childhood trauma is a long-standing and disturbing history of mother-blaming. A myopic focus on the emotional intricacies of the parent-child relationship neglects to consider that parenting does not happen in a vacuum and is dependent on the social, emotional and material circumstances of the parents in question. It also seems to be exacerbating intergenerational tensions and distracting us from the fact that much childhood trauma takes place outside of the family home. Ultimately, I believe that our ideas about childhood trauma should supplement, rather than replace, other ways of thinking about pain and suffering and how we, as a society, deal with these together. I think if people listening to this podcast were going to take away one thing, one piece of understanding about childhood trauma, I think it would be to understand that there's a role that everybody can play in protecting and supporting children and young people, whether that's a young person directly in your family, whether that's a young person in your community, on your street. We as adults have a responsibility to be protective factors in children's lives. And if someone was listening to this and encouraged to feel that they could be, you know, more playful, more curious, more accepting, more empathetic in their interactions with children, that's all I could ever hope for. That was Living with Feeling. It was presented by Emma Sutton and produced by Natalie Steed. We're grateful to the Wellcome Trust for their generosity in making the series possible. To hear more episodes, subscribe to Living with Feeling on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts and find out more about our work by visiting the Emotions Lab website. Thank you for listening.